WIOX is supported by you and the following underwriters. Rockland Cider Works Upstate in Gilboa, an agritourism cidery with vacation rentals on a sprawling former dairy farm. Gluten-free hard cider made from 100% New York State apples. New York State produced beer, wine, and spirits. Rockland Cider Works Upstate on Stryker Road in Gilboa. RocklandCiderWorks.com Diamond Hollow Books on Main Street in Andes for secondhand vintage and new books. Specializing in literature, the arts, Dante, mycology, and Emily Dickinson. Children's books and stationery. And Diamond Hollow also purchases used books. Open Thursday through Sunday, 10 to 5, by appointment or anytime the front door is open. Upstairs at 72 Main Street, Andes. Readings, book signings, and event schedule at DiamondHollowBooks.com. Watershed. Roxbury's Coffee Shop and Market on Main Street in Historic Roxbury. Open from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. Sunday through Wednesday with extended market hours until 6 p.m. Thursday through Saturday. Coffee, breakfast, and lunch in the cafe and in the market prepared meals to go in basics like dairy, produce, dry goods, beer, and cider. Watershed, Main Street in Roxbury, watershedroxbury.com. And on Instagram at Watershed Roxbury. Peek-a-Moose Restaurant on State Route 28 in Big Indian with farm-to-table cuisine Thursday through Monday. Indoor dining from 4 to 9 p.m. Takeout till 10. Peekamoose.com or 845-254-6500. 845-254-6500. I'm Dennison. I host Through the Looking Glass where I discuss issues of culture, politics, and the environment with a little music on the side, Monday morning, 9 to 10, right here on WIOX Roxbury Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM, MTC Cable Channel 20, and WIOXradio.org.
Okay, you are listening to WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM and MTC Cable Channel 20, 107.5 FM on the campus of SUNY Delhi and everywhere at WIOXradio.org on computers or smartphones and also with the Radio Garden phone app. This is from the forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Talk about a different forest-related topic with Ryan and Zane. Zane, how's it going? Good. Good. How are you doing? I'm all right. What have you been up to? What have I been up to? Well, we've had a lot of nice weather on the weekends. Uh, I've been splitting wood. That's all I've been doing. Splitting wood, huh? Yeah. Any favorites for splitting? Well, I finally uh, got my wife to come out with me and drag the last of the red oak out of the, out of the woods. Um, she marked him up with the measuring tape and the hatchet and you got I the cut tape out don't you huh? yeah well she she goes oh you gotta have holy it, yeah. cow so i got all that red oak stacked in its own pile and i gotta start splitting that but i might have a little project for that i kind of want to do one of those kind of uh dome-like stacking techniques i think yeah. they're called swedish holtz oh yeah hugen yeah Haugen. um that seems pretty cool because it's going to be sitting outside for at least two years i want it to look pretty and I got a perfect spot for it. Um, I think it'd be an interesting little project. So I've been looking into that. Cool. Yeah, it looks a lot better than what I got. Maybe I got a nice yeah. long rectangular uh, stack of firewood with um, used green carpeting on it as a cover. Like, like about that. I've been thinking a lot about carpeting. So if there's anybody who's looking to get rid of some carpeting, I would certainly love that because <laughs> carpeting you've works. told me all the benefits. Yeah. So there's really nothing yeah. like it, I think. I've been using these rubber mats, and they work, but for yeah. the long term, I I don't want to use them. I mean, uh, the carpeting that I got was someone threw it out over a bank and intended for it to go down into the stream. So it's obviously questionable about the quality of this carpeting. Mm-hmm. But, um, hey, one man's garbage is another man's uh, treasure, and it's been working really well because it forms to the top of the wood pile. And it doesn't become shrapnel in the wind like uh, metal roofing can and hit cars. <laughs> or um, I get a lot of wind. So tarps are a nightmare. They rip. They tear. Water gets in there. They freeze. It's terrible. So I've tried everything. Stacking pallets on top of stuff. It just doesn't work. But the carpeting works. Yeah, well, I'm learning, so I'm all ears, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's a neat little experience. But uh, I, I started, believe it or not, maple sugaring, and uh, I tapped trees the earliest I ever have. I have tapped in January before several times, but this year I tapped January 1st, which is really early, obviously. I refused to tap before then. I'm not going to do it in December, and I boiled, which is really what's important. Sometimes you just tap, and they don't run. But I've boiled four or five times already, and I boiled the 2nd of January the next day. Sugar content is normal so far. And get this, the 14-day forecast is uh, pretty mapley. Highs in the upper 30s, mid-30s, low 40s, where I live at 900 feet, Ulster County. And uh, lows are below freezing. In fact, there's a few days where it's not going to freeze at night, and they need to freeze. I try to explain that to my daughter, Maple. She's like, she's really shocked when we don't get sap and it's warm. It's got to freeze, man. It's got to freeze <laughs> at night. So Anybody joining you out there in the sap house? Oh, yeah, they come out. They, what they do is they just pirate the sap and bring it inside and drink, <laughs> drink it like a bunch of, uh, I don't know, rascals. 
They love the sap. They like drinking it. It's slightly sweet. And uh, Maple lives up to her name. She likes anything sweet. She's a candy hog. And uh, so that's that. But tonight's topic, uh, we have a guest on tonight. It's called Pledge to Protect with St. Lawrence, Eastern Lake, Ontario's Megan Pistolisi Shaw. Let's see if I said that right. Uh, Megan has a BS focused in ecology, environmental education, and sustainability. Experience with aquatic and terrestrial invasive species identification impacts mode of introduction, prevention, and management methods. Um, she leads SLILO's Education and Outreach Committee and collaborates with their partners to raise awareness of invasive species and coordinate outreach events throughout the region. Recruits and trains volunteers to recognize and report invasive species, and she is their Education, Outreach, and Communications Coordinator. Let me see if I can get her on from up there in St. Lawrence. How's it going? Megan, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hi. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. How are you? Oh, we're okay. So where are you calling in from? Well, I'm calling in from the Black River area. The Black River area. Weren't we just talking about that earlier today by coincidence? Yeah, we were, yeah. So I guess there's a very famous company out there that does uh, guided whitewater rafting expeditions or tours. I don't know if you're familiar with that company. Yeah, I am, actually. I've gone down the river a few times. Yeah. All right. There was one had a positive experience, and the other staff at the staff meeting today was not very positive. So it was yeah. very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so you're in the St. Lawrence Valley. Could you just explain this area a little bit to us down here in the Catskill Mountains? Um, some of us never go up there ever. And when I went to school at the Ranger School in Wanakena, people up there have no idea about down here in the Catskill <laughs> Mountains. We kind of just don't get together, so... Yeah, sure. So the St. Lawrence Eastern Lake Ontario region, or SLILO for short, it spans over 7,000 square miles of land, and that is including the counties of Oneida, Oswego, Jefferson, Lewis, and St. Lawrence. And it also includes some notable land and waterscapes, such as the Tug Hill Forest, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, the Thousand Islands, which people love to come here to visit those. Uh, we've got the Great Eastern Lake Ontario and the St. Lawrence River um, are some examples of some geographic places that folks may uh, know about in this region. What's that? Say that again. Uh, those are just some great geographic locations that people may know about the Swilo region. Sure. Is that where you're from in that area or somewhere else? Well, I'm from this area. Oh, yeah. Okay. And what, what county is that again? It is St. Lawrence uh, County, or is it Lewis? I don't know. Or it's in Jefferson County. <laughs> Neither. Black Raiders. <laughs> I struck out there. <laughs> huh? Yeah, I've, uh, I've been up to the St. Lawrence River. My, my parents uh, rented camp out on uh, Alex Bay, uh, actually closer to Clayton. And uh, it's right on the river, and, uh, yeah, it's a really nice spot. So before we get into the meat of the topic, uh, what got you interested in all this? What, what made you... Uh, go into this field of invasive species and whatnot? Uh, well, actually, I, um, I just love the outdoors, and I love learning about nature and talking about nature. And um, I began this career path as a watercraft inspection steward. So um, I would inspect people's boats looking for aquatic invasive species and educating the public on 
how they can clean drain and dry their boat to prevent the spread of invasive species uh, to the area. And that's what launched my interest in the realm of invasive species and what led me to my current position with Slilo Prism. Okay. How long have you been there for? Since 2015. Oh, wow. Jeez. All right. So how would you define invasive species? Yeah. So um, the term invasive species, it can be easily confused. Um, there are many non-native species that are not considered to be invasive. Uh, for example, apples and many other agricultural plants are non-native species that are considered to be beneficial to our culture rather than harmful. Um, there are also species that you may consider to be a nuisance uh, but are not invasive. Uh, dandelions come to my mind, for yeah. example. A lot of folks get upset about dandelions being in their yard. Um, and, but for a species to be identified as an invasive species, they have to be not just non-native, um, to the environment in which they've been introduced, but they have to cause some sort of harm to the economy, the environment, or even to human health. And invasive species can be plants, it can be animals, insects, or even microorganisms, which we all experience with COVID, right? Sure. You still there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. How about, about native species? Can native species be in invasive? So the term invasive in my work is strictly applied to those species that are not native, but they cause harm. So there could be some native species that, as I mentioned, we might consider to be a nuisance, but they're not really causing harm. They might just bother us in some way. Um, you know, get some weeds in our garden, for example, might bother us, but they're not really causing harm to the environment. They're not reducing the biodiversity of an entire um, ecosystem, for example. They might just be in our way. Mm. That's the main thing I would want people to understand is not all non-native species are invasive. To be invasive, they have to be causing some sort of harm. Yeah. And there's, there's lots of different ways that these invasive species can be introduced to. Um, global trade has really opened the door for invasive species be introduced all, all around the world. Um, they hitchhike in ballast water, you know, in cargo crates, and they often can go undetected until they've spread far distances in their new homes. So invasive plants and animals are often introduced intentionally by people too for various reasons, such as like beautifying their own landscape or say they have an exotic pet that they no longer want and they may release it into the wild. And then when that happens, uh, these invasive species, because they're not native to the area, they don't have the natural predators, for example, that our native species have co-evolved with. And because of that, their populations become out of control. They're not being kept in check. So that's one of the main reasons why they become such a problem is because they're lacking those natural predators. Uh, they're often um, able to produce many offspring which lends their ability to grow into larger widespread populations. So um, your position is uh, outreach and education. You're, you're uh, tasked with raising awareness of these species and how to manage them or look out for them, identify them. Um, tell us about that. 
one of my main roles is education and outreach, and that's one of the main reasons why I'm here today is to talk about one of our education outreach initiatives called uh, the Pledge to Protect. Right? Um, so protecting our lands and waters from invasive species, it's a year-round effort. Uh, there's lots of different activities that can be done each season and even at specific times of the year. Um, and in each of our natural settings, like our lands, our trails, our favorite, you know, paddleways, our favorite forest to walk in, even our own backyard, our gardens, and in our community, there are steps that each of us can follow to protect our natural surroundings from the impacts of invasive species now and for generations to come. So to raise awareness of the role that we all can play, um, Spiral Prism has developed a fun and easy way that listeners can get involved, and that is the Pledge to Protect. And to take it, it's pretty easy. You can visit ipledgetoprotect.org, and there is a brief online form that you fill out to become what we are calling a protector. And then each month you're, you will receive an email blog that showcases simple yet impactful actions that you can take to protect your favorite hiking trails, paddleways, favorite forest, backyard, and community from the impacts of invasive species. Plus, you get chances to win some pretty cool prizes for taking some of the actions, actions that we share in the blog. So, you know, let me just back up a second here. But, um, you know, who, what is Slalo Prism? I mean, a lot of people might not be, um, you know, familiar with that. We have CRISP in our area, which is a Catskill mm -hmm. Regional Invasive Species Pro, Pro, uh, Partnership. And they do, you know, invasive species outreach and education in the in the Catskill Mountains. So, could you just uh, briefly explain how this is organized? Yeah, definitely. So, there's actually a few layers to this question that I just want to peel back. So, first, it's important to mention that New York State is considered considered a continental hub for the introduction of invasive species to the continent. So. This was recognized by the state back in the early 2000s, and an invasive species task force was established and recommended that a collaborative approach should be taken to address invasive species. So from that recommendation, eight partnerships for regional invasive species, or PRISMs, were established, and the St. Lawrence Eastern Lake Ontario, or the SLILO PRISM, is one of these PRISMs. So the PRISM Network is actually a unique um, collaborative approach to invasive species management that isn't established to other parts of the U.S. Um, and other states, but is beginning to be recognized and even mimicked. So the PRISM Network is funded by the New York State Environmental Protection Fund in coordination with the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation and some other state agencies and various host organizations. Uh, Slido Prism is hosted by the Nature Conservancy, and we collaborate with multiple regional and statewide partners to implement our mission to protect our lands and waters from the impacts of invasive species. And it is through these collaborations that the Prism Network has made tremendous progress towards preventing the spread of invasive species and also mitigating the impacts of invasives that become established in New York State. What what is like a, an invasive species up there that sticks out to you as something that is controllable? That is controllable. So yeah. that's kind of a loaded question in a way. 
because um, as I mentioned, invasive species have a tendency to become pretty widespread. So for something to be considered controllable, it has to be, it has to be found um, before the populations become too widespread. Uh, those are species that we call like a priority species uh, that are thought to be either not in the area or in a low enough abundance to be controlled. So um, at this moment in time, uh, there are some priority species that we're asking folks to keep an eye out for. Um, spotted lanternfly is one of them. Um, it is popping up in parts other regions in New York State, but in Slilo, it hasn't been popping up um, to our knowledge quite yet. And that gives us an opportunity. Um, it gives us an opportunity to uh, stop the spread of that invasive species, or if it's found in the area, it gives us an opportunity to uh, have a rapid response and be able to eradicate the species from a certain area if it's found early on enough, we could do that. Um, but once an invasive species becomes really established, like for example, swallowwort is an invasive plant, pale swallowwort, and this area is like ground zero for swallowwort. We have a lot of it out here. And when that happens, it just makes it much less likely that the species will be able to be eradicated from the area because it's become so widespread. And in that case, it's more of a suppression um, approach where we're containing it, we're um, monitoring the borders of the known infestation, for example, to make sure it doesn't spread to another area and become even more of a problem. What, what is uh, some success stories that you've had um, since your time there? Uh, well, one of our biggest um, success stories is probably our watercraft inspection uh, program. This is also a statewide program. It doesn't just happen in our region, uh, but that program, it, it's just a great way for us to engage with the pub public and raise awareness and also a great way for us to intercept the introduction of uh, new species from entering our water bodies. So I would, I would list that as a good example. You know, we're, we're in um, Nature Conservancy did a study a number of years ago. Um, wasn't really surprising to a lot of us like foresters, but, um, you know, the southeastern New York State where the Catskill Mountains are, highly impacted by deer browse. What's the deal with deer browse up there, and is it at all affecting the abundance of some of these invasive species? Um, so with the deer, I'm not too familiar with, with all that research. I know that if the deer are eating the seedlings of native species in our forests, and that's helping the invasive species get a stronger foothold would be my understanding of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, I mean, that's that's my understanding. Is there any kind of out, education outreach, you think, in the future about deer management, or is it just not on the radar yet? Uh, deer management isn't anything that's, that the PRISM Network is involved in. No. Well, might be something to consider. <laughs> Because <laughs> I feel like it's the root of the, of the issue of a lot of these, whether they're native or non-native. I don't know if you guys have a problem with native species, but they are harmful in our in in my perspective. Native species like uh, American beech and fern. Uh, American beech has a problem with beech bark disease, of course, which is non-native. But New York fern, man, in our area is extremely invasive, even though it's from here. 
and I would say harmful to forest regeneration, but it's really the cause from deer. But I don't know. Do you have fern up there? Yeah, I mean, I see lots of different fern species when I'm going for hikes, looking for invasive species, actually. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot of different types of ferns. but So you have this um, this five-tiered system where you prioritize management of invasive species. Um, do you want to talk about that and maybe talk about how an invasive plant might uh, go up or down the, that tier system based on how you manage for it? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of invasive species out there, which I'm sure you're aware of, and there's a lot of land to cover. We, No one really would have the capacity to manage every invasive species found everywhere. So we place emphasis on prevention, early detection, rapid response, ecological restoration, and raising awareness through education and outreach. Those are our main um, goals. So uh, prevention is number one because, you know, if you prevent something from entering an area, then you don't have a problem, right? Um, early detection, what does that mean? Um, well, it means uh, if you find a population of an invasive species early enough, then the feasibility of eradicating it uh, is higher than it would be if you have, you know, an entire lake filled with water chestnut, for example. Um, rapid response refers to uh, the way that we respond to a, no, a found infestation, and that can vary um, depending on where it was found, if it's on public land, if it's, you know, in an area that we call like a priority conservation area which is an area known to have high ecological value. Uh, it could have maybe a rare species that lives there, for example, um, or be near a body of water or something like that. Um, and in that case, we, we would have a different response versus if something was found in somebody's backyard, that's private land, um, and we would take a response of, communicating with uh, the property owner and giving them the guidance that they would need to manage that species um, themselves. Um, and then also ecological restoration is a big focus for us too because, you know, uh, if we go out there and we remove an entire uh, you know, patch of, um, you know, small wart from one area, um, for example, and we don't replace the area with some native species, then that area will just be another spot where a different invasive species could go in there and, and take hold. So it's really important to include restoration and invasive species management to avoid that from happening. And then raising awareness through education outreach is a big thing too, uh, because we all play a role. Um, in this, you know, what we do today impacts tomorrow. Um, every time we go out and enjoy our favorite places, you know, just taking a hike, you know, there might be like a seed or something like that in the tread of your shoe. So learning that there might be something there and if you were to use a boot brush before you take that hike, you could prevent the spread of an invasive species from ruining the places that you like to go and enjoy the outdoors. So, we're, Megan, we're going to take a break, but um, when we return, we're going to really go into this Pledge to Protect and this program um, you're promoting. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Tonight's topic is Pledge to Protect with St. Lawrence Eastern Lake, Ontario's Megan Pistolisi Shaw.
That is George Harrison. This is from The Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Talk about a different forest-related topic. Tonight's topic is Pledge to Protect with St. Lawrence, Eastern Lake, Ontario's Megan Pistolisi Shaw. Am I saying that name right, Megan? Are you there? Oh, yeah. It's, uh, we're close. Pistolisi Shaw. <laughs> All right. All right. So, um, yeah, let's get into this Pledge to Protect program. And uh, I know you already kind of mentioned it a little bit, but um, that is the basis of the show. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we could talk a little bit more about it. So it's just a really fun and easy way that listeners can get involved in invasive species prevention and management. Uh, they take the pledge um, and they get the tools. So what are the tools? Uh, the tools come in a, dif- a few different forms. We have a monthly email blog, as I mentioned earlier, and each of the blogs will showcase a simple action that uh, pledgers can take to protect their lands and waters from the impacts of invasive species. Um, We cover topics like um, native alternatives to invasive uh, plants for your garden, for example. Um, We talk about clean draining and drying your boat, um, teaching folks how to just um, keep it so the invasive species that may be in their yards, like how they can manage them, for example. Um, Also, we have uh, what we call virtual toolboxes. Sounds fancy, right? So um, there's a different toolbox for each of the environmental areas. So lands and trails toolbox is geared towards hikers, you know, people that like to just, you know, go for a long hike and just be outdoors in in, um, forested areas. And uh, there's a toolbox for waters, and those are um, geared more towards people who like to go boating, kayaking, fishing, um, or maybe they own some waterfront property, for example. Um, you know, we have a forest toolbox, and that would be geared towards uh, forest landowners or land managers, for example, and a garden toolbox, uh, and that's more, you know, people who like to um, tend to their yard and have a garden. And then community toolbox, which is geared more more towards um, folks that live in urban areas, um, and there's information on how to protect street trees and urban forests from the impacts of invasive species. And these are all on our website. Uh, they can visit ipledge2protect.org, and the sign-up form pops right up. They can fill out the form, become a protector, and then if they scroll down the page, they'll see the virtual toolboxes that I just mentioned, and they're just jam-packed full of information um, to help folks become acquainted with invasive species they may encounter in those different areas. Um, they may encounter them on the trail or when they're on the water, for example. And it also has a lot of resources from our partners, um, outreach materials or, you know, guides, for example, where people could really uh, learn how to prevent the spread of invasive species and also how to manage invasives on their own property. Um, so it's a great resource, and it's a great way, a fun and easy way to help protect our lands and waters. So people take this pledge, and they're pledging to protect uh, public lands and their own private land? Yeah, pretty much. Um, so nature knows no boundaries, right? Um, so what we do every day, um, you know, in one area actually lends to protect our connected land and waterscapes. So um you know, people go for a hike and they 
maybe use a boot brush station and they stopped, you know, maybe invasive swallowwort from spreading and ruining their favorite hiking trail, but also, you know, the forest that's part of that hiking trail, for example. So I noticed the uh, pledge, pledge to Protect has five main areas of protection, lands and trails, waterways, forests, gardens, communities, as you just described. And just what is an example of each of, of something, of tips that you would give to people, like lands and trails, for instance? Actually, if you wouldn't mind, I'd really like to talk about uh, the forest um, toolbox. And, you know, sure. This is the uh, from the forest podcast here. Yeah, so, go ahead. Um, yeah, maybe just share some, you know, give some recommendations that forest owners can take to protect their forest from the impacts of invasive species, and then just um, a couple examples from our toolbox. So, uh, one of the biggest ways to protect your forest is to conduct an inventory of the types of trees that exist on your property. So knowing this will better prepare you for invasive pests that could threaten the health of your forest. So, for example, hemlock woolly adelgid, or HWA for short, is an invasive pest that kills hemlock trees. And if your forest has an abundance of hemlock trees, then you know that you need to prepare for HWA, right? So there are resources available through Cornell University's New York State Hemlock Initiative uh, that help forest owners and managers prioritize hemlock stands to manage for or prepare for an infestation of HWA. So Soil Prism is actually hosting a workshop on this topic on March 8th, and you can get details and sign up to join us by visiting our events page, which I'm sure you'll share in some comments. Um, and another resource available to help forest owners assess the health of their forest is the Keep Forest Healthy Scorecard. So this was developed by our host organization, the Nature Conservancy and other partners. And this scorecard serves as an evaluation to help you identify potential risks and to highlight management options that may increase the ability of a forest to cope with the pressure of changing conditions such as climate change or invasive species. And these are just two uh, resources that are a great example of the types of resources that you'll find in our forest uh, protectors toolbox. Do you know, uh, like, examples of, like, a healthy forest on that scorecard? Like, what are some of the criteria? Um, that would be uh, actually a topic for somebody else to cover more. Um, I'm more or less just sharing the resource yeah. with you and letting you know where you can find it. Okay. All right. Um, go ahead, Zane. Well, um, so uh, to become a protector, you're, you have uh, access to um, some emails that you send with some resources that people can uh, use, uh, correct? Yeah, yeah. So you get an email blog sent out each month, and it'll feature a specific action that you can take. So, for example, right now it's winter time. So right now we're really raising awareness uh, for hemlock woolly adelgid because during the winter they create this white woolly mass around their body and make it, uh, an insect that's literally the size of like a, like a sesame seed. It's so small, or a, pe or a speck of pepper even. It's that small, but in the winter it's easier to see this tiny insect because it makes this white woolly mass around its body. So uh, we're sending that information out now to people who have taken the pledge to protect to let them know you know, hemlock willy adelgid is uh, easier to find in the wintertime, and then we teach people what to look for. We tell them, you know, check the branches of hemlock trees. 
where the needles connect and look for these white masses. And then if you find it, you know, we want you to report it to um, imapinvasive.org, which is uh, New York State Invasive Species Observation um, Reporting Platform. So that's just one example. Um, in the summertime, we might reach out more about, um, you know, preventing the spread of an aquatic invasive species and telling folks, you know, hey, clean, drain, dry your boat before you go in the water. Or we might be reaching out to um, gardeners um, and letting them know, you know, some resources where they can find um, or learn what's native to their area so then they're able to make that choice, make a, a plant-wise decision and choose species that are native to their area rather than an exotic species that may, over time, end up becoming invasive um, because a lot of times that happens. So the Project Protect is just serving as a way to fill that gap, you know, um, between just information and action. Like, mm. you know, people may know invasive species are bad, but, like, what is the action that they can take from, you know, spreading an invasive species to their favorite place that they like to go hiking or paddling? Or they might see a plant growing in their backyard and, you know, not even know that it's invasive, but if they become a protector they will receive information that might let them know what's invasive in their own backyard and how to remove those invasives and maybe get some recommendations of what they could grow in their yard instead. Who are the, uh, the people you mostly encounter, you know, demographically? So the Pledge Protect is really for anybody. Um, we have... Right, but who are you, who do you mostly serve from your experience? Uh, well, we have a lot of um, people who take the pledge to protect their garden. There's, that's a really popular one. Uh, there's a lot of, like, outdoor groups that have um, taken the pledge to protect. Um, but it's really for anybody. Um, anybody who wants to play an active role in protecting their favorite outdoor spaces can take the pledge to protect. Okay, but there's no, like, trend of, of who's taking it? It's just, I mean, I realize it's for anyone, but there's no, like, yeah, is this, uh, is like uh, certain uh, acreage size or landowner, private landowner, gardener. It, there's like, well, who would you say is a you know your your biggest audience? Well, there's not really a, a way for me to tell um, that type of information from the person that takes the pledge because I don't collect that information when they take it. Um, but they can choose the category, so they can choose you know to protect them all and get an email that has a summary um, showcasing actions that they can take for the different categories, or they could just take uh, a pledge to protect their forest, for example. Yeah. Um, and then that information would be geared more toward forest owners or um, protecting forested land. What, what do you think? Does that answer our, your question? Yeah. What, what do you think um, people's like awareness or perception is of invasive species? I'm generally speaking, you know, from from talking to people, I, I assume you go to events or fairs or festivals and stuff. Oh, I think that people have an understanding of what an invasive species is, but they may not have an understanding of what their role is in preventing the spread of an introduction of invasive species, and that's yeah. what the pledge to protect aims to do. It's taking information and encouraging action and yeah. providing the simple steps that all those actions. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I feel like that's that's what I encounter is that people don't really know what to do. Um, you know, 
do they just go out and start killing willy-nilly non-natives? Start or? squishing bugs and, uh, you know, <laughs> right. scraping things. And, uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of invasive species. Well, I'd say a lot, but, like, some of them are very easily identified. You can clearly see where they're taking over, and uh, people take it as a license, to, you know, to just uh, get rid of them, you know. But anyway, they can, uprooting them, squishing bugs and scraping egg masses and things like that. Um, but I wanted to ask you, you know, these, this in kind of invasion terminology, a lot of these species, you know, uh, were brought here, uh, and they're just trying to colonize and using different strategies. And I wanted to know if there's any uh, particular species that you encountered that you were really intrigued by its biology, by how it adapts, by how it moves through the environment. That's something that made you think, like, wow, this is uh, something that's fighting for its life, but it's, it's, you know, it's clearly having an impact. have a specific species that I really would like to draw upon the like what you said about you know the whole idea of invasion invasive species and you know a lot of invasives like you mentioned you know can't were intentionally introduced and that's uh, very true for a lot of um, our invasive plants like honeysuckle for example is really beautiful and people like to put it in their yards right. it's used to like um, control erosion you know there's a history behind all of the invasive and that's my point, is that um, people might not realize, you know, they might introduce something because it has a medicinal purpose. You know, mm -hmm. garlic mustard is an example of that. But what we're not realizing is, like, we're bringing it here. Like, yes, nature can move on its own. You know, wind and water can move seeds, et cetera, you know, and things do expand on their own. But they do not expand on their own at the rate in which human activity aids that expansion. And it's really important that folks just um, understand the role that we all play in this, right? Like everything we do today impacts tomorrow. And we all have a responsibility and, and just, you know, taking little, little easy steps, you know, make a really big impact and can really um, protect the areas that we all love and cherish. I mean, eastern Lake Ontario, the St. Lawrence Eastern Lake Ontario region, and all of New York, really, is it's quite beautiful and it's worth protecting. And we can do it. Um, it's just a matter of making the decision to do it and taking, you know, little steps here and there to, to protect these lands and waters. Is there an invasive species that... Like, which, what's one that really bugs you? <laughs> yeah, you've encountered on the boat launch, you know, something that you that stands out. I We have uh, water chestnut is one that is very um, prevalent in our area. And, you know, but I enjoy going out onto the water and bringing volunteers out there, teaching them about the plant and uh, how, um, doing water chestnut pulls. Um you know, swallwort is really prevalent in our area, too. Um, it's all over Robert Whaley State Park, um, and we're doing some biocontrol work um, with that plant to try to suppress it. Um, I mean, I don't really have, like, a, you know, a quote-unquote, you know, favorite or anything like that. Well, I, I remember I was up in the St. Lawrence, up in A-Bay, and uh, a couple of years ago, I think it was like 2013, 2014, I remember that summer there was a huge outbreak of uh, mussels. I think these kind of like razor 
Zebra mussels. Zebra mussels, yeah, that's what they were. And uh, they were everywhere. I mean, I was trying to swim, trying to do other things around the water. I had a scar on my hand from uh, trying to grab a rock to steady myself that they got me. And then years after that, they, they weren't there. They had moved on or they had the population had crashed. But um, to me, that kind of was interesting yeah, experience. Yeah, it is. I mean, nature is interesting. Yeah. Um Everything in it has a role, and it's not that invasive species are just like nemesis or anything like that. I mean, they're 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 alive like anything else. Yeah. Um, it's just the it's just the um, the fact that they don't have those natural predators that they thrive. They may have the ability to thrive where our native species that have co-evolved right with our native flora and fauna. Um, the invasive species don't have that history hmm. with our native flora and fauna. There's very specialized relationships that exist between insects and plants that are really impacted by invasive species. They just don't offer the same ecoservices that our native species do. So that's really what the big thing is, is the loss of biodiversity, the loss of the native species here that, um, that serve to sustain the wildlife in our in our area. It, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic to me because some of these actionable items um, that you might give to people to uh, help uh, suppress these species are also ones that people would be kind of reluctant to take. Things like using pesticides or putting up fencing hardware in the woods. Um, or cutting, cutting down trees to, to help promote other species or create some kind of obstacle course for uh, deer or something in the forest floor. Lack uh, of fire. Fire, yeah, fire management. These are all also kind of management techniques that people would kind of be reluctant to um, embrace as well. So this is just a dynamic are, I've noticed. Well, those aren't really the actions that, we're, that the Pledge to Protect is asking people to take. I'm not asking anybody to go out and pour chemicals on their backyard or anything like that. The actions that we're wanting people to take are simple and easy, like choosing to grow a native plant in your yard instead of an exotic plant. Even if it's not known to be invasive, it might become invasive eventually mm. because that's the story with most of our invasive ornamental plants, right? Or, uh, you know, firewood. Uh, firewood can have insects, uh, like the emerald ash borer inside of it. So it's important to source firewood from local areas rather than moving it far distances. And, you know, to take the time to clean the tread of your shoes or to give your dog a bath, you know, before or after um, a hike because the seeds can get stuck in their fur. Mm -hmm. Those are the types of things that we're asking people to, to do with a pledge to protect. What you're talking about are just, you know, some management techniques that might be used when applicable, but they are not the, the, the widespread message, the messages that um, the prison network is putting out there for, for people to take. Right. Yeah, I would say they probably should be, but um, as far as from a forester's perspective, they're uh, going to have to do some management at some point. And absenteeism, absenteeism is a big deal. A lot of these things like autumn olive and, and uh, Japanese barberry, multi-floor rose have been around for a century or two, but they've only recently become a problem. Yeah, so Flea Prism and other prisms, we do have um, approaches to managing the target species in our area, and 
we will control invasive species in our priority conservation areas using different methods. But the pledge to protect isn't about necessarily about managing the invasive species. It's more about teaching people what they need to know to prevent the spread. Right. And yeah, there is some management in there, but it's not so it's, um, so at the scale that you're talking it's, about. It's right. It's on a small scale. You're saying like day to day stuff. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I'm trying to figure it out. It's literally day to day things. Okay. Like just um, you know, I've said this a couple times, but cleaning, drain, drying your boat's a big one. Right. Um, the you know play play clean goes message of you know stop invasives in your track by cleaning the tread of your shoes. Things like that are what we're talking about. Okay. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest. Tonight's topic is Pledge to Protect with St. Lawrence, Eastern Lake, Ontario's Megan Pistolese Shaw. Pretty sure I'm butchering the, your name there. Nope. But um, <laughs> But, um, yeah, are there any important issues your organization is working on that listeners should know about other than the Pledge to Protect? Oh, well, I mean, we have a lot of different things that we do. Um, but... Today, the Pledge to Protect is the main one that I was trying to get across, but folks can learn more about what we do and connect with us. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. We have a website, freelowinvasives.org, um, and we also offer workshops, webinars, guided hikes, and paddles that folks can get involved in. Okay, and um, let's see. How, as your perspective of invasive species, you've been there since 2015, right? Has it changed at all since when you began, or anything that that you, you know you have learned along the way that kind of surprised you? Um, just that you know, really, people are really eager to get involved and to help, and I feel that people really care about our environment. They care about their communities. They you know care about that forest that they like to go for a hike in, or that paddleway that they like to bring their family out on their boat, and that. People really do want to help, and that's what the Pledge to Protect is here to do, is to, to just give them a little bit of a guiding hand, um, a, a reminder or a resource for them to be able to, to do what they innately want to do, and that's, you know, to protect their their um, favorite outdoor spaces and to enjoy those areas with their friends and their family. Yeah, I mean, awareness is important. It's, as I've heard it said once it's the first step to change and it sounds like you're uh with this program you're uh kind of creating this new culture where people are just mindful of uh the decisions they make as they're enjoying um these public areas or their own private lands um do you have anything that you're looking forward to this year with the program or anything you that you would consider uh uh success with this I always look forward to just um, getting out there and having a chance to talk about um, who who Seattle Prism is, what we do, and uh, different ways that people can protect our lands and waters from the impacts of invasive species. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I pretty much live and breathe invasive species uh, management and restoration, so it's just it's very exciting work for me. And I'm very thankful that you um, have given me the opportunity to share it with your listeners. All right. Uh, we only got about a minute left. Is there anything you wanted to leave off with? No, I just hope that folks will um, check out the Pledge to Protect at ipledgetoprotect.org and um, get get involved. All right, Megan, thanks for coming on tonight. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a good night. You too.
All right, and if uh, you missed the show tonight, it was Pledge to Protect with St. Lawrence, Eastern Lake, Ontario's Megan Pistolese Shaw. And uh, what do you got, Zane, before we leave off anything? Well, uh, no. No? No. You're quite you ever been, you've ever been up to St. Lawrence? Never. been up there? I've been to Canton and north of Wanakina. Uh, to do some tree ID because there's not many tree species diversity in the Adirondacks, so we had to go see an apple tree. We had to drive north a little bit, but um, no. Yeah, I remember um, the first time looking at the St. Lawrence. I mean, it's it's a it's big. I mean, you know, it's, if you didn't know you're looking at, you think it's a whole lake. But uh, watching the ships go in and out, those shipping containers, yeah, um, yeah, definitely is bringing in something. <laughs> yeah, you know. It's it's uh, Pangea coming back well, together. There's, there's a whole bunch of benefits trade. to global trade as well. It's yeah. the Colombian Exchange. You got to listen to that radio show with uh, what was it Charles Mann? Charles the Colombian Exchange, 1491 and 1493. Two books he wrote. Excellent books. Still playing out to this day. All right, guys. Have a good night. Take care. Good night. Oh, the neon lights were flashing and the icy wind did blow. The water seeped into his shoes and the drizzle turned to snow. His eyes were red, his hopes were dead, and the wine was running low. And the old man came home from the forest. His tears fell on the sidewalk as he stumbled in faces stopped to stare but no one stopped to speak for his castle was a hallway and the bottle was his friend and the old man stumbled in from the forest up a dark and dingy staircase the old man made his way his ragged coat around him as upon his cot he lay And he wondered how it happened that he'd ended up this way Getting lost like a fool in the forest And as he lay there sleeping a vision did appear Upon his mantle shining the face of one so dear his grizzled fingers and she called him by his name and then he heard the joyful sound of children at their games in an old house on a hillside in some forgotten town where the river runs down from the forest Come.